Zach Subridio from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up. And I'm here with Prism editor, Ashton Lattimore. Hi, Ashton. Hi, Zach. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, appreciate you taking the time today, especially with uh, one of your little kiddos getting you a little, little cold, a little under the weather. So appreciate you um, plowing through and joining, joining the Boston Speaks Up podcast this morning. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> it's, uh, it's my pleasure. And uh, I think that, you know, the, the sort of the community of listeners that we have, um, it's kind of starting to grow globally of just folks that are sort of interested in, in sort of, um, the innovation economy and sort of with, with the slant of like, you know, you know, socioeconomic impact and change and like the manner in which, um, the, you know, collective society can become more woke to put it as the young people would say. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that, I was very pleased in um, reading my Axios Media Trends newsletter last week and discovering that Prism is a uh, is a new publication, sort of focused on um, all the all the topics that really really matter um, to all all humans and sort of all society, um, which I'll get into in a moment. And and you are at the helm of that publication, so um, looking forward to unpack that. I'm going to flow, you know, I'm going to provide just a little bit of background on on you, Ashton, for listeners, and then and then we can start the discussion from there. Sound good? Yeah, works for me. Cool. So Ashton Lattimore is the editor in chief of Prism, a BIPOC-led nonprofit news outlet. BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Prism formally launched in August 2020 with a focus on coverage of electoral justice, gender justice, workers' rights, criminal justice, racial justice, and immigration. Lattimore is a longtime editor and writer whose work focuses on race, culture, and the law. Her writing has been published by the Washington Post, Slate, CNN, Essence, and other outlets. Prior to joining PRISM, Lattimore was senior writer and managing editor of the University of Pennsylvania Law School at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and previously was the lead editor at News One. Also a former lawyer, Ashton represented Pennsylvania's governor in the lawsuits that successfully challenged the state's congressional map as an illegal partisan gerrymander, resulting in the implementation of a new map in time for the 2018 elections. Lattimore received a BA in English from Harvard College, an MS in a Master of Science in uh, Journalism from Columbia, and a JD from Harvard Law School, where she was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. 
She lives in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, with her husband and two sons. <laughs> now, did I get Bryn Mawr right? You did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. Yeah, it's not really intuitive how you pronounce it, but yes. That's... No, two words, one, one vowel. Impressive. Yeah. Um, and the and the other thing I'll, I'll add for listeners is, you know, Prism, it's about a team of 10 right now, and the, the entire editorial team is uh, is women of color. And sort of that's the, 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 the lens through which the, the staff is looking through um, is, is from sort of that underrepresented voice of uh, people of color in this country. And, and right now, Ashton's entire team is, is, um, is female. Um, and Ashton, I'm just, you know, off the bat, like before we kind of go into some background, you know, give some sense of... Um, how prism came together because i know from chatting with you briefly beforehand that it's been about a year in the making mm-hmm. and yeah. and um you know is is what you were discussing a year ago more or less what's come to fruition and then just from your words if you could just give myself and listeners just kind of a overview kind of top line elevator pitch on on you know what you are um, prism and sort of what your mission is and what you're aiming to accomplish. Sure, of course. So, so what prism is, uh, we're a nonprofit news outlet and our mission is to produce journalism that treats black, indigenous, people of color, women, the LGBTQ community and other invisibilized groups as the experts on our own lived experiences, our resilience, our fights for justice. Um, basically using original journalism, uh, commentary, really smart analysis from people who are closest to the issues that we're reporting on to build an accurate record of what's happening in our country um, and really stand as a corrective to some of the the toxic narratives that are being presented and perpetuated by uh, legacy media outlets around things like criminal justice, electoral justice, gender justice, um, and the other issues that we report on. Um, So as you mentioned, it's been about a year um, for them um, published we published our first piece um, in June of last year, um, so so we're a little bit past a little bit past the year mark at this point, um, and it's just been a it's been a growth process. You know, we've um, we've been building and building and building for this whole year. I came on board in um, September of last year, and um, we've been building our editorial team ever since. And actually, it's only been since March that we've had. Um, our full editorial staff, so that's me, um, that's our senior editor, uh, Mitchie Trota, that's our senior reporter, Tina Vasquez, who covers workers' rights, gender justice, and immigration, that's Noah Changa, who's our electoral justice reporter, um, that's Carolyn Copeland, who does copy editing, and she covers race and culture for us, and that's Tamar Sarai Davis, who does our, our criminal justice reporting. Um, and, and now we've got this dream team in place, <laughs> um, nice. and we're ready kind of be off and running and you know what a moment to to, to come into as a, a woman of color led newsroom um even with everything that's happened with the pandemic and and with the uprisings in defense of black lives um and now this announcement now we have a woman of color for the first time who is the vice presidential nominee uh for a major party so um you know this is um certainly a time when people who are looking for um, a real sense of what's going on in this country and in the world should be looking to and listening to women of color and lifting up our leadership. So yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited um, about, about the work that we're doing. 
Wonderful. And um, I, I know you share this in the pre podcast sort of Q and a, like the, the aspirational goal of which I think the real, you know, very realistic goal for, for prism just to become like a really like an, an international um, hub for, for um, content, uh, you know, for discovery and understanding um, of facts, you know, from underrepresented communities. Um, it, it seems that you've built that sort of nucleus, that team um, to execute against that mission. And we can talk about that a bit more later, but you just alluded to big breaking news um, this week. Uh, Kamala Harris was named uh, Joe Biden's running mate for, for Veep. Um, she is of Indian and Jamaican descent um, and just a really um, sort of lovely, prominent, outspoken um, politician um, who's you know, in the last couple of years, I think, has, has really um, set herself apart, I think, from, from some of her peers um, and, and her ability to sort of, um, you know, very confidently and respectfully uh, challenge the status quo what you know what what are your feelings about the the announcement um you know the i think news just broke in the last 24 hours i believe um but yeah just any general thoughts on on the on the on the decision was it a, was it a surprise and sort of you know how do you feel about um Kamala Harris and and Joe Biden ticket moving forward you know in some ways this presidential cycle the way it's unfolded has been at the same time the most and the least surprising you know, kind of outcomes <laughs> that you could have imagined a year ago. Um, I think going through the entire cycle um, of the Democratic primary, it certainly seemed like there was an opportunity for, for somebody else to break through. Um, but, you know, Joe Biden came in as the front runner and he left with the nomination. And I think Kamala has long been someone who uh, was expected to be in the pool of folks for his potential vice presidential pick. And, you know, now here she is. Um, so it's um, it's certainly a historic moment. Um, it's an exciting moment in terms of um, political representation for for women of color, for people of color, for you know, Black communities, for South Asian communities. Um, at the same time, I think people are somewhat of, of two minds. Um, you know, representation isn't justice. Um, whether somebody is from a particular community doesn't necessarily mean that you know, their policy choices or their policy preferences are going to be aligned with what everyone in that community is looking for, which is, you know, not everybody in the community is looking for the same thing. Right. So, you know, it seems like there there's a lot of excitement, um, rightfully so, um, you know, myself included about kind of the historic nature of this moment and, and what it means to see um, a Black woman, um, an Asian woman kind of lift it up to, to these heights. Um, but but there's still, there's work to be done. Uh you know, people coming from a more progressive kind of political stance certainly see this as a moment um, where where there's work to be done to to push what looks to be you know a fairly moderate um, centrist yeah. uh, democratic ticket um, to the places where where progressives think it needs to be. So, uh, you know, what that work looks like over the next month before the election, what it may look like in the years to come if if we see you know a Biden and Harris administration. Um, that'll be the question and, and that'll be kind of what, what president focusing our attention on. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Good. Interesting answer. Um, very thoughtful answer. Well, you know, something you kind of 
scratched into and, and was on my mind. You know, I was kind of reviewing Kamala's policy, like even back to when she was like district attorney of uh, San Francisco. And it's interesting, like there's some topics that, you know, she, you know, leans, you know, you know, somewhat fairly or, or at least, you know, moderately in the direction of, of progressive agenda. But she's had she's she's been pretty strict on on crime. And like, I think from a criminal justice standpoint, like I'd be really interested in like Prism's perspective, like now and, and in the months ahead, like um, about, you know, any potential, you know, sort of not necessarily concerns there, but like how she may need to like evolve her, you know, sort of criminal justice reform sort of agenda. Um, is that, is that something that you've, you've followed historically? Like we recently had, uh, Boston, uh, Suffolk County, uh, district attorney, Rachel Rollins on the podcast. And she talked a lot about sort of the, she talks a lot in general and talked a lot with us about just the very sort of, um, sort of like narrow, um, policy, um, of, of sort of, you know, the criminal just around the criminal justice system in general and, 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 you know, the, the inability to, take a more progressive approach to misdemeanors or early releases and also just the programs, um, that can help underrepresented communities to like, not just perpetuate like the sort of private agenda of the prison system. So, you know, these are topics that I anticipate that prism has and, and will cover, but are there any, any, anything on, on that agenda that you'd like to comment on now? Um, and is, and is that something that you're kind of alluding to when you, know, you kind of mentioned sort of like the more moderate sort of, sort of centrist kind of ticket that is Biden Harris? Yes. Um, this is a really interesting moment to have a former prosecutor um, on the, the presidential ticket on the Democratic side. Um, I think her record um, is what it is, and it's colliding with a moment where there's um, much more mainstream conversation around not just police reform, um, kind of fixing the system and tweaking around the edges, but wholesale abolition, you know, defunding the police, abolishing prisons. Um, and fundamentally, if somebody is a prosecutor, you're part of that system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to kind of conceive of how somebody coming from within that system um, necessarily intervenes in a moment like this. Um, but uh, given people taking to the streets, um, you know, for, for Black Lives Matter, um, the way people are, are speaking up and speaking out, um, and certainly the way that the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, is ascendant in this moment and was ascendant in this moment even before um, all of the uprisings um, came about and kind of changed the conversation around criminal justice. Um, I think it'll be difficult <laughs> to perhaps maintain um, a more moderate or centrist position um, at this time. And, you know, that's, that's how change happens. So, so, so absolutely, as, as the months and years uh, roll forward, um, PRISM will be featuring, um, of course, original reporting on this from our criminal justice reporter, um, and also, you know, from activists um, and people who are working on the front lines of social change and calling for police reform, police abolition, defunding the police, um, you know, all of these different viewpoints and outlooks. Um, that's kind of why PRISM's here. We're here to give space and give a voice to those folks to really share 
um, what their vision of the future is, what they're fighting for, and how they're fighting for it. Great. So with, with regards to Black Lives Matter and just the continued momentum um, of, of the movement, can you speak a bit, you know, generally your, your, your thoughts on sort of what Black Lives Matter sort of means to you, but then I think sort of more, more pointedly, what should, what is, or, or should be the goal of Black Lives Matter? And then how, as a nonprofit editorial team, um, are you, you know, are you covering and, and planning to cover Black Lives Matter? Maybe speaking a bit more to like how you're engaging with um, and channeling um, the voices of, of folks on the on the front lines of the movement. Sure. Um, so, just speaking for myself, you know, when I say Black Lives Matter, that means I mean it means what it means. <laughs> um, it means Black people and our lives, our bodies, um, our existences. Are, are valued, we're respected, we're cared for, we're kept safe, we're empowered, we have access to resources, to care, to justice. Um, basically, the Black people are whole human beings and we deserve to be able to live and thrive um, as whole human beings in this country, um, but in a way that the system, as it currently exists, is designed to prevent us from doing. So, so that's, you know, when you say Black Lives Matter, that's, that's, it's a rallying cry to, to change to, to the system that's preventing us from living, living out our lives as, as whole people um, and, and all that that entails. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's not for me to say what the movement needs to do um, yeah. or what its, <clears throat> what its goals should be. Um, but as we've been covering it, what we've really been trying to do is... Um, lift up the work that um, frontline organizers have been doing for years and years. You know, this isn't a moment that suddenly exploded into existence from nowhere. Um, This is an emotional convulsion in response to um, what's just the most recent instance of, of, you know, police violence against Black people, you know, what happened to to Breonna Taylor, um, you know, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, I could, you know, the name go on and on. Um, What this is, is a sustained, organized movement that has policy objectives attached to it. It has specific demands attached to it. Um, There have been people who have been doing this work behind the scenes for many, many years. um, And I think it's important to recognize um, and that we have recognized through our reporting on this, um, really what the Black Black Lives Matter movement is at the sort of the ground level and at the policy level, because I think some of that gets um, lost in a bit of the, the breathless reporting um, in, you know, the, the mainstream outlets, you know, people have taken to the streets, there's looting, there's rioting, you know, maybe, but <laughs> there's, yeah. there's deep policy work, there's deep thought work that's going into, um, that's going into this, this push for change. Um, and that's really where, where PRISM tries to live. So in our original reporting, we certainly um, try to cover things from that angle. And then, of course, we feature um, commentary from, from people who are in the work, who are, who are doing this work and who have been doing it for a long time to share, um, you know, from the front lines what things look like and, and what the reality is on the ground. Yeah, that's great. 
I find myself frustrated watching mainstream media's coverage of Black Lives Matter because it is very, it's very surface level. Um, it lacks um, solid, detailed reporting on like the uh, the objectives, the policy object objectives, and just um, range of sort of specific goals that um, that the movement has. Um, I think it's a big disservice to the movement. I think it undermines the movement a bit. And my hope is that um, an organization like PRISM, as you're reporting, as you're, you know, everything kind of, especially in media, repetition frequency is everything. So as you're, as you're consistent reporting um, on the sort of the details and the important nuance of the movement um, persists, like, do, do you envision... Um, I know you're like running the show, you're editor in chief, so you may be writing is, you know, perhaps a bit less than normal because you're kind of overseeing and, and kind of playing an editor role. Do you envision yourself or your reporters um, getting on that stage on mainstream media um, and in and, and not dissimilar way as, you know, Sarah Fisher from Axios and how I discovered you, right? She, she's a, she's a, she's a thought leader in media and she's on, you know, the CNBCs of the world talking about the nuance of like streaming TV and, and the streaming TV wars, et cetera. Right. Like can it, will, will it be Ashton Lattimore and or staff on those mainstream outlets sharing um, the nuance around these um, policy object objectives of the Black Lives Matter movement um, as a result of just great continued reporting from your team. That is one of the goals and ways that sort of your editorial organization lifts itself up and becomes that go-to national news outlet for sort of smart, civically engaged, you know, justice-minded people. Is that, is that fair? Is that a fair goal to, to, to create here? And, and you probably already have it, but they play that out correctly. <laughs> That's absolutely a fair goal. Um, certainly um, a goal of ours. Um, you know, to change a conversation, you have to be in the conversation. Um, and, you know, a lot of these mainstream outlets, um, particularly the ones on, on television and on radio, that's where these conversations are happening. And they're being, you know, beamed and streamed directly into people's homes through the TV, through, you know, videos that they're watching online. So, so certainly um, it's, it's going to be incredibly important for um, our reporters to, to show up in this moment and all the moments to come um, to really lift up a new narrative around what's happening, um, not just with, this movement, but with all of the, all of the different stories and issues that we report on. Great. And I guess just the follow on point kind of on this topic, like I think there's, there's a great economy of scale to prism doing great reporting. And then from a, from a sort of video sort of premium sort of video mainstream media perspective, you know, getting invited on to, and participating in the conversation in mainstream media, but sort of between your reporting on site and mainstream media. I'm just curious, like what are your goals in, in, in with regards to multimedia, whether it's a podcast or podcasts, plural, um, or just video in general, like how, and, and how are you in sort of tangential to that, you know, social media are, you know, is there, are there prism social accounts that, you know, will, distribute content and or like allow for takeovers from, you know, community leaders, um, 
of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, um, which which some organizations do, um, you know, with folks on on say Instagram, for example. Um, what what sort of the what sort of like the video and multimedia strategy sort of relative to, to sort of progressing forward um, all the great reporting? Cause as, as, as you and I know um, you kind of have to go reach out into the world and all these different disparate channels and kind of um, spoon feed um, messages <laughs> in, in different sorts of ways to, um, to garner the intention and, and impress upon folks um, your messages and in the different sorts of ways and the increasingly different sorts of ways that folks are, are consuming media. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and we're, we're ready. We're ready to hit people from, <laughs> from every single angle. <laughs> nice. So um, in terms of video, we've done a couple of video events, um, you know, now that there's a pandemic and everybody's kind of in the house, there's been a kind of a widespread pivot to, to video panels. Uh, and we've done a couple of those um, and seen some really, really strong success and strong engagement with those um, and been happy with the conversations we've been able to curate. So that's something that we're going to continue, um, you know, iterating on that, you know, learning how to do it, uh, learning what ways work best for us. Um, as far as podcasts go, um, you know, like everybody else, I think starting a podcast is certainly on our radar. Uh, it's not uh, an immediate kind of short-term goal, but uh, we do have that skill set um, on our staff. Um, our electoral justice reporter in particular, Arnoa, is, um, you know, a podcast guru. Um, she has like a long, long-running podcast, The Way with Anoa, where she um, has talked to like organizers and, and activists about different things that are going on in the world. So knowing that she has that skill set to bring, um, that's certainly something that we want to explore since it's a way that people get their news now and kind of get commentary and consume information. Um, and then of course, yes, we do have social media accounts. You can all follow us uh, at Prism Reports. Um, and that's the same Prism Reports at, um, you know, on Twitter, Instagram, um, and Facebook. So yes, we're everywhere. Uh, we're putting out our content everywhere. Um, and, and we'll be in, in more and more places as we go forward. That's great. Um, I, I love to kind of go and, you know, for a lot, you know, the, we over index our listenership in sort of the Boston community or, or folks kind of around the world with connections to Boston. Um, and you have some connectivity to Boston and, and having um, spent time um, here for, for, for school. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, like if you could take us through the arc of like, your, your, your childhood and, and sort of, you know, what, what you chose to pursue from an education standpoint. So what was it, what, and, and starting with, starting with your childhood, um, what, what was it like growing up in, in central New Jersey? You described it pre-podcast as pleasantly quiet and, and you spent a lot of time reading. I'm curious what, yeah. you are, what did, what did a young Ashton Lattimore find, find herself reading? Um, growing up in central New Jersey? Oh, all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> really, I read whatever I could get my hands on. Um, I read a lot of, uh, you know, novels, of course. Wrinkle in Time was a huge favorite. Um, as I got older, I read a lot of Anne Rice, which I think maybe now probably I should not have as a, <laughs> as a young person. Um, I'm a big historical fiction buff, so I read read a lot of things kind of in that genre. Um but I also kind of read encyclopedias and, and just like 
little tidbits of information, which is why I'm kind of, my brain is sort of a repository of, of just random trivia and facts, I think, as a result of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up cool. in, in you know, suburban central Jersey, um, incredibly diverse town, um, which has been hard to find um, as an adult um, for my own children, um, something that I've, I've noticed. Um, but yeah, that I spent most of my time reading and, and then writing. Um, I've pretty much been a writer since since I can remember, um, you know, at a bare minimum since like fifth grade, um, writing short stories and then writing terrible poetry as a teenager. <laughs> and then, um, you know, in college, um, which is the point at which I moved to the Boston area, um, to go to Harvard, so I was in Cambridge. Um, that's when I joined the, the campus newspaper, um, just as an op-ed writer, and then eventually, you know, rose to the ranks to be, um, an editor of the op-ed page, um, and, and yeah, I've, I've just been kind of the same since then. Um, and actually spent most of my adult life in, in the Boston area. I was there for four years for college. I left for two years, um, live in New York, um, when I went to journalism school at Columbia. Um, and then I was, um, uh, editor of News One for a year, um, before I went back to law school. So I was back up at Harvard again. Um, and then I lived in South Boston for, um, I think it was, maybe four years after, after law school. So yeah, I was, I was there for, for quite a while. <laughs> nice. So you spent and so you spent a good amount of the early, the earlier time you were in Boston in, in Cambridge, I imagine. Is that where you yeah. like to go around, uh, around the campus? Pretty much just around campus. Yeah. I did not, yeah. did not venture out across the river too much. Yeah. And then you, and then you made your way to Southie. What was it like? So, so you mentioned central growing up in central New Jersey, you were in a, you were in a, Sounds like a very multicultural, um, you know, well, you know, very diverse um, community. Like, what was it like going to? Uh, what in what year did you go to to Harvard College? Uh, two thousand four. Two thousand four. I graduated in two thousand eight. Okay, the 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 Cambridge gentrification hadn't like totally <laughs> picked up yet. I was in Somerville, like by the end of that decade, like 2008, 2009, and it was just losing its, uh, its, its billing as Slummerville. Um, and look how far it's come now, but, but I'm, I'm curious what, what, you know, what was, what was Cambridge and, you know, maybe Boston generally, but what was like sort of that Camberville, some people call it Cambridge Somerville. What was that area like, um, you know, coming from, from, from your community in, in central New Jersey? Do you find um, it welcoming? Like, what, what, what do you just kind of remember distinctly about kind of making the move this way? I just remember loving it. Um, <laughs> coming from the nice. suburb where, you know, you had to get in your car and drive to get anywhere. And the best place to go was, I don't know, the movie theater next door to the Walmart. Um, and then suddenly being in this cultural hub where there are restaurants and you can walk to them and there are all sorts of theaters and different things to do. I mean, I was thrilled um, and, you know, made myself a promise to never live in the suburbs ever again. <laughs> now that I, <laughs> now that I have kids, um, I kind of yeah. led my parents to, to make the choices they did. But, um, but no, I loved it. I loved Cambridge. Um, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if I ended up living there again at some point in my life. Um, nice. It's wonderful. I miss it. I miss it very much. Oh, cool. Yeah. We'd love to, we'd love to have you back. Um, I, I, I went out to Los Angeles with my wife for five years and um, we ended up back 
ended up back in the area. We're, we're up in uh, Beverly, Massachusetts, so about 15 miles north, north of Boston. Okay. Um, but I do miss, and I, I Camberville holds a special, special place in my heart. I still got some good buddies that, um, that live in like that Inman square area kind of between Cambridge and Somerville that, um, that I, I I still frequent when, when I can, but not during a pandemic. Um, (laughs) no, not at all. So in curious, did, so did you, do you have siblings growing up? Like, what was your, like, what was your household? Like did, in, did, you know, your family, um, is your family close? I actually am an only child. So it was just me, um, in my house. Um, but I grew up in the same town with, um, my cousins. So we went to the same schools and, nice. and they, they were around, um, all the time and I was around them all the time. So, um, yeah, not, not particularly lonely or quiet uh, kind of, kind of childhood. Um, but yeah, I was, I was an only child. So. Nice. Um, so you, you, you go to, you go to Harvard college, you get your, you get your undergrad degree, you, you, um, you get an MS in journalism from Columbia. It's 2000. So I was graduating undergrad around that. So it's 2008. It's recession bleak time for a lot of industries never mind then you go look at media journalism and it's like oh you know publications are getting gutted the advertising is sort of model for digital publishing is struggling um so you make kind of a, a practical decision of like all right like i need i need to pursue a career that's 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 going to be more sustainable than perhaps journalism so you go to law school um is i mean i'm summarizing it so i mean you you, you, you tell, tell me if there's any other color you'd like to add there, but like, what were your thoughts kind of like, as you were making that move from, from potential journalism career to, okay, I'm going to go get a law degree now. Yeah. I mean, I think you've hit upon um, a lot of it, the country, the economy, the journalism industry was in shambles and free fall at this point. Um, and it just didn't feel like, a safe industry to be in. It didn't feel like a practical industry to be in. Not very financially rewarding. Um, you know, it, it's just not. And and living in New York at, at that time, you know, one of the most expensive cities in the world, just trying to get by on, you know, what was this, a journalist salary at that point. Um, it was just tough. Um, and just law school felt like it's just one of those things that sounds like a really good idea. Um, especially people say this all the time, you know, you like to write, you know, you like to argue. I write op-ed. So yeah, I like to like write and make arguments, you know, go be a lawyer. It's basically writing and editing and reading all day. So, so you should like it. You should be happy. Um, and you know, the law itself, the legal system, they are interesting. I certainly find them interesting. Um, and it's a useful way to understand the world is a useful way to understand the country um, and it certainly informs the work I do now but but yeah the day-to-day practice was just not that was just not my ministry it's just not <laughs> it was yeah. not what I felt called to do um, so yeah you know I, I, I did law school and law school was more fun than, than actually being a lawyer because law school is school um, and, and I actually had the opportunity to do some of what I love being there, being on the law review. So I got to, you know, edit things and write things and um, have a little bit more, I don't know if I would call law review writing editing creative freedom, but um, a little bit more than you would find like writing a brief or, you know, yeah. writing a, a law firm. So, 
you know, I, I stuck it out practicing for about about three or four years. Um, and then I just, you know, I've been a writer since the beginning. Um, and I think I, I eventually just arrived at the, the conclusion that I trying to do anything else was just not, not going to work for me. It was not true to who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and the political landscape certainly contributed to that. Um, feeling like after what happened in 2016, um, just seeing what the world was, what this country was, what it was capable of, um, and you know, what kind of fights needed to happen over the next four years, over the next eight years, over the next decade, um, not wanting to feel like I was on the sidelines, um, in a way that I, that in the way that I did, um, practicing, practicing law. Right. This is kind of jumping back into the fray. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I'll say it, these, these can be my words, but so, you know, borderline insane person gets elected president in 2016. And, um, and at that point in time, you were, you were still practicing law, but it sounds like your passion, um, for journalism and sort of like, you know, you know, putting, putting together compelling, you know, fact-based pieces of, of, of content, um, to, you know, help, uh, inform and, and potentially as a result of it influences folks opinion of, of things. Sure. But just that, that, that kind of started to come out strongly in you. Um, I think that's beautiful. And, and, and the experience that you had, I think as a lawyer, um, makes you a particularly, um, strong journalist. I, I'd love for you to share a little bit your thoughts. You know, you kind of teased at this in the pre-podcast Q and a, but your thoughts on like the, the, the inequity or the inequitable relationship between journalists and, and, and sort of common, you know, journalists sort of salaries and then the, um, cost of living in the cities that journalists are, are, you know, generally speaking, like required, you know, required to report from, from the front lines of, um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, that's an issue. Um, do you have any thoughts on like how that issue gets addressed? Like to me, it's sort of analogous to, to education where like for, for whatever reason, like I feel like we're, we undervalue educators. We, we undervalue journalists and there's actually an article on, rprism.org right now, black and brown school districts are struggling to retain teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I think in general, um, you know, children, um, and, and when it's with, when it's with regards to education and just society in general, when it's with regards to journalism are really the, like let down when collectively as a society, we, we don't come up with better ways to, um, incentivize talented people who have the passion and the purpose-driven mindset like, like you do, Ashton, to actually confidently pursue careers as educators or journalists uh, because of the financial component. And I'm just, I mean, can you, can you, can you weigh in on that a bit? And, and I'm just curious, like, it seems like there's, there's a bit of a thread of that in, in some of um, Prism's, co- you know, content that I can see, you know, sort of throughout the site. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also part of the way that, that PRISM is structured. Um, I feel so strongly about this issue um, in journalism, you know, this idea that everybody 
to, to have a career um, in journalism, to have a meaningful career, to make an impact, you know, you have to move to New York, you have to move to DC, you have to move to LA, some of these huge cities, some of the most expensive cities in the world. Um, this isn't just a financial issue for individual people. It influences the diversity of the field. Um, if you don't come from a family with money who can support you and float you while you live in New York working on your $35,000 a year salary, you know, as, as, a, as an editor or a first year reporter, you're going to fall out of the profession. And, and disproportionately, people of color are coming from families who aren't able to support them in that way. And then as you get later in your career, if you're not able to be mobile to move to cities like this um, to chase that big job, that's when it is disproportionately shut out women, um, people who have families who, you know, can't just pick up and go wherever they want to, you know, their kids are in school. Maybe their husband doesn't want to move. Maybe their, you know, their spouse doesn't want to move. So, you know, it shuts out people who come from lower income backgrounds. It shuts out um, more diverse voices and it shuts out um, also entire areas of the country um, where people, you know, maybe you grew up in Georgia and you don't want to live in, in New York. <laughs> you should right. still be able to be a reporter at a national outlet because stories from Georgia, stories from Missouri, stories from Iowa, they matter. Um, but, but the way that the industry is structured right now um, makes it feel like and makes it so that it's incredibly difficult for, for journalists who are um, basically anybody outside of, you know, well-to-do, well-connected, white, often male people who live on the coast to really get a toehold. Um, I would think, I would have hoped that the pandemic, you know, forcing everybody to go remote would have been kind of a wake up call. Like, Hey, you can kind of do this work from anywhere um, for a lot, a lot, um, for a lot of it. And um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, do you, do you feel that that, do you feel that that's the case right now? Like employers, especially like media companies are being forced if they didn't already to have work from home policies. And I, I know New York reporters and, and I know New York media people, you know, people generally speaking, and they've like not renewed their leases and moved to Jersey suburbs or they moved up like three quarters of the way up Long Island, you know, where they have space and, and they're like, yeah, well, we figured we got a year. We can probably do this during this pandemic. And, 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 and now I'm hearing, I don't think I want to go back to the city, you know? And, and also like there there's, you know, and then of course there's all the, you know, the lower cost of living, they're saving money now. They're not just like, you know, making it work. Um, yeah. do you feel, do you feel like that's a silver lining to, to COVID-19 and, and sort of, you know, from, from this pandemic we're in and, and everyone kind of being sequestered at home? I think it can be a silver lining if the industry recognizes it for the opportunity that it is. Um, And so far I have not seen that, you know, I've been seeing some job postings that are like, well, this position is remote until the pandemic's over and then we're going to need you to move to New York. And it's like, interesting. So you're you're seeing, yeah. So you're seeing, you're seeing positions for journalists, for journalists in New York. And it's very specific. It's like, Hey, you know, this is at home right now, but you, you need to be in New York when the pandemic's over. Um, yeah. what, what, would you disclose, like, what kind of position is that? Is that like a big national media outlet position? Oh yeah. These are at national, national media outlets. And some of them have, have, um, I think it was NPR actually just, just reported out that they made their internship program remote for this year and got like 
thousands more applications than they usually get because so many people across the country, you know, would be journalists are hungry for these opportunities. But, you know, now that you take away the requirement to move to whatever city, now it's accessible to that many more people. But but so far, it doesn't look like it's being um, treated as a long-term shift, which is disappointing. Um, you know, Prism's actually 100% remote. We've been 100% remote from the beginning. So we're all over the place. You know, yeah. uh, we've got in California, I'm in Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina, New York. Um, and I think it really allows us to pull the best talent from across the entire country um, and also just let people live their lives in a way that that's humane and in the place that they want to live um, while still doing amazing, rigorous, journalism and i don't see why everybody can't do that right i mean i I can't help but think that the balance there's a more balanced collective perspective right like as you make your next you know three four five hires like who's to say it's not valuable to you know like like hire someone in bozeman montana and austin Mm -hmm. texas and park city utah it's like almost the more the wider array of communities that your, you know, editorial team resides in it, it, they can also sort of like they're channeling a perspective of like a unique community. Like there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of a false, um, falsehood in everyone reporting from like the few major cities you mentioned, DC, New York, LA, um, San Francisco, obviously over indexing on just more like tech innovation business, um, where we're, we're, we're underrepresenting the, the, the majority of the population sort of like lens through which they see, which I think speaks a bit to like the, you know, you know, prism, um, from a, from a brand ethos standpoint, right? Like, can you, can you envision, um, like when you like when I when I think you know forward a few years, like I can almost imagine Prism being a bit of a blueprint for a new or an older sort of media operation to kind of reorient itself um, with more of a purposefully distributed sort of scattered um, editorial team because because to me it seems like it almost can create like superpowers for the manner in which you can you can provide like really balanced reporting yeah i absolutely think so i hope it does serve as a model um, and i hope that you know folks seeing the coverage that we're putting out and seeing how well done it is um how well reported well researched um and strong and diverse from different areas of the country can show you know you can do this you can have a team that's that's all remote. You can let people live where they want to live, where it's affordable for them to live, where their families are. Um, and at the same time, you can have them practice their craft at the highest level um, and put out a publication that you can really, really be proud of. Oh yeah. I hope it, I hope it does serve as a model. Yeah. Agreed. What, uh, what sorts of stories are you, is your team working on right now? Like as you, as you gear up for the fall, I mean, it's, it's an election year. So that's, that's a big, you know, issues, um, policy issues I imagine might be on the list, but like, what, you know, are there, are there particular stories? Like you mentioned research, like what types of things are you gathering research on right now and topics, you know, do you feel like are most important, um, against the, you know, the range of, of topics that are most important to, prism generally, right? You know, electoral justice, gender justice, workers' rights, criminal justice, like 
immigration, um, how, you know, how are you prioritizing right now, you know, August, 2020 and heading into the fall, like anything in particular, you'd like to share or tease out that we should, we should be sure to come in and, and, and tune in for or sign up for the newsletter and, and, and get excited to read, uh, later. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So of course it's an election year, um, and it's, an unprecedented election year for a lot of reasons. Um, so electoral justice is a huge priority of ours in this moment. Um, and we've really just been tracking the story of um, voting rights and voter suppression um, mm-hmm. and also what's happening with the mail system um, and the way that all of these systems are kind of coming together to potentially disenfranchise thousands, tens of thousands, um, maybe more, uh, particularly black and brown voters, um, really all over the country, but especially in the South. Um, I know our electoral justice reporter is based in Georgia, um, and there's no end to electoral shenanigans that are going on um, in Georgia. So it's a constant thread that we're following. So absolutely, folks should stick with us um, for that kind of coverage on an electoral justice. Um, And as the movement for black lives rolls on, um, we'll be all over that. Um, our criminal justice reporter, uh, Tamar, is, is following the threads um, around that, around defunding the police, um, around local work that's being done in um, with you know local budgets um, to, to figure out exactly what the defunding process looks like at a granular sort of how-to level. Um, if people want to take that information and take it to their own county budgets or township budget meetings is so much the better. Um, so you can come to prison for that. Um, and in, in immigration, um, Tina has been really closely watching um, what's unfolding, especially with um, migrant children who are being held in detention right now um, and these family separation policies that are, that are being pushed kind of behind the scenes by people who um, you would expect not to be doing that. Um, there's a lot. There's That's a great. lot going on. Um, and as schools are reopening, of course, you did mention we have our um, our education series that's in the yeah. process of rolling out um, on educational um, inequity for, for black and brown, black and brown students. And, and Carolyn's kind of leading up that coverage for us, which will be really important um, given everything that's happening with education right now. That's that's great. You just the the manner in which you kind of presented that it it, it, it compelled me to think like is Prism a, a good is is your not always, but is one of your desired outcomes readers to come to Prism and actually not only get informed, but like have almost like it's action-based um, consumption where like, hey, like read this, get informed, feel confident, and then like take it to, you know, your local community leaders um, to help, um, you know, and make sure that, you know, this, you know, this sort of voter suppression doesn't exist. It's, you know, as an example, um, it, it seems like that would be a way I would now kind of go into prism, like through that lens. Is that, is that an, is that an outcome that is just sort of like great if it happens or, or do or is that like an intentional kind of focus? Like this is sort of, Hey, like take action with, with this journalism. Like it's sort of like prism comes bearing the gift of, of well-researched, um, you know, definitive, reporting that can help the readers go into their communities and actually, you know, participate in change. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way that you put that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's an affirmative goal that we have. Um, 
part of our reporting is, is informative in the sense that it shows you um, what people are already doing in their communities, but it's also the kind of reporting that can and that we hope does spur people to action because we show what's possible. Um, I think so much of legacy media sometimes focuses on how black and brown folks are downtrodden, what's happening to us, what's being done to us. Um, whereas the, the perspective that PRISM comes from is really what are we doing? What's our fight? What's our strategy? Uh, what's our thought process? What's our vision for the future? And people yeah. should absolutely come come to PRISM to, to see that, to understand it, and to, to take what you can from it um, and bring it back to your own life, your own community, um, and do your own organizing to, to push for, for a better future. Great. Um, good thing this is recording so I can go back and listen to what I said. Cause I don't even remember. Um, <laughs> just, just in the flow. I'm enjoying this so much as we're run, we're running up on time. Um, one, one of the thoughts that comes to mind is that as your team is working on series going into the fall, like in particular, like electoral justice, um, and voter suppression, you know, like all the, I think all, like all of, all of the topics are, are important, but I think with regards to sort of educating the general public on, um, things that really matter relative to the, to the election this year, uh, I think it, it will be, it'll be neat. I'll be watching closely like the series that your team's coming out with, but it might be cool to have some of your staff, you know, staff on at different times, you know, when they finish like a, a, a big, you know, deep, deeply researched topic and, and unveil like, you know, whether it's a single article or just a series on, on a particular topic, um, it might be nice to kind of bring them on to Boston speaks up and kind of share with folks like, um, the salient points from that, from that, um, that reporting and kind of point them to the, to the article, you know, the, the article or articles, uh, consider me a cohort, um, in, in that, in that mission to, to, get your reporting out, you know, via, you know, all the different channels, um, <laughs> that it can. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll send folks your way. You'll, you'll be yeah. hearing from us. Like I said, we're right. going to be everywhere. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited for it. Um, and it's interesting to, when I consider your, um, and one thing we didn't touch, I'd love to touch on briefly, like it, your, your experience in law, it just, it really is an interesting and, and relevant and, and important sort of like, I guess, you know, there's an under, undercurrent it kind of provides to your leadership at PRISM. Like you, you represented Pennsylvania's governor in, in lawsuits that challenged the state's congressional map and, and, and you know, as, as a legal partisan gerrymandering. And, and that is, um, you know, when I talk to my friends in politics that are, go much deeper on political knowledge than me, like almost always is, is, is the topic they spend perhaps the most time on is, is, um, the, the gerrymandering that, um, that exists, um, on, on sort of like state congressional maps and, and the, um, the, the need to, um, reform, um, and challenge sort of like what's been, um, you know, what's being sort of, uh, implemented in a lot of, in a lot of States. Um, so I'm just curious, like that, how was that, ex that experience for you? And is it, you know, is it, is it safe to say, like, is, 
is that as as big a topic as I'm making it out to be um, as part, you know, along with sort of um, some of the manners in which voter, you know, voter suppression is, is, is um, sort of permeating, you know, more, more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge issue. Um, it's one of the experiences that I'm really glad that I had um, while I was still practicing law. It was actually one of the last things I did before I left <laughs> the profession. Mm. So I was able to come away on a high note, but um, it's, it's a hugely important issue because it's just an incredibly undemocratic thing to do. Yeah. Um, to structure these districts in a way where basically the representatives are choosing their voters and not the other way around. Um, and it's self-perpetuating because once you have representatives in place who are fine with doing this, the representatives are the ones who draw the next map. Yeah. Um, so they just keep doing it and keep yeah. doing it and keep doing it, which is why we had to have um, the court intervene. Um, you know, it was really fortunate, I suppose, that, that in Pennsylvania, um, our state court was willing to step in where federal courts were not um, based on Pennsylvania's state constitution and not the federal constitution. Um, so this is an issue all across the country, um, and it's an ongoing fight that has real material consequences for people's representation in the state house um, and representation you know, in Congress and the House of Representatives, which of course influences policy. Um, so you're absolutely right, this is a huge issue. Um, you know, people are just going to have to keep keep organizing, keep fighting, keep suing, keep suing. You know, governors and keep suing legislatures and, and all the right folks to try to to get this overturned. But there have been victories around the country. Um, you know, in several states, they've been able to implement um, independent redistricting commissions and things like that to to get things moving in the right direction. So it's not hopeless by any means, but but there's, there's a long fight ahead. Yeah, and and keep reading Prism to get informed and, and sort of sh- and share with your fellow community members and community leaders um, to, to spark, you know, to spark, spark change through, through knowledge, you know, sort of share knowledge. Um, Ashton, this, this has been a, a pleasure. Um, I, I'm really, really grateful for the time. I want you to uh, take care of yourself that cold. I appreciate you battling through that, that, that cold that you, that you have. Um, sure. And, and and just like I said, you know, Boston speaks up. Uh, consider us a um, you know a, a, a friendly partner uh, moving forward. And and I'm really I'm glad that we've had a chance to chat um, last couple of weeks now, a couple of times. And um, yeah. yeah, so I'm, and and if Boston were to to get you back as a re- if Massachusetts were to get you back as a resident someday, um, I would so love that we can get the uh, get the kiddos. <laughs> get the kiddos together you have a you have a three and a one-year-old i have a three-year-old so we're in the same uh, same age range that could be fun getting them all together yes absolutely yeah this is lovely so thank you so much for having me on zach i really really appreciate it of course of course looking forward to sharing this with the community well we'll talk soon all right all right bye bye cheers boston cheers bye